Friday's almost here. You don't have time to go to the post office. It will be packed with so many people you'll want to scream. So use stamps.com instead. You use your own computer and printer to print your U.S. postage for your letters and packages. We use stamps.com. Why don't you use stamps.com? Right now, get this special offer when you use my promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial, and we know that's just confusing. <gasps> Plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus off for the digital scale. And free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. The show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Perry and Kingsley. Behind me now, you are listening to a um, slightly hungover host of Risk. Uh, I have to confess, Albuquerque broke me. I'm recording this here now from the festival called Pornotopia in Albuquerque, and the porn and the pervs just kind of derailed my no pot, no alcohol plan. But don't worry, I'm okay. And I had already actually been thinking of switching to a, a plan of moderation, perhaps. Anyway, in the midst of the whole imbroglio, we gained something out of it. We gained a new Stamps.com song. I won't go down in history as, you know, the man with the strongest willpower, but I will go down as probably the best goddamn advertiser of Stamps.com there is. Also, this weekend in Albuquerque is the first time ever I'm meeting face-to-face with Risk's episode editor, Jeff Barr who's been working on the show for uh, like three and a half or four years now. So it's been a magical, wonderful weekend. But I should probably talk now (laughs) about the episode you're currently listening to. This is live from Atlanta. We were in Atlanta last week. I'm, I'm traveling so much now with the show, I can barely keep track of where I am. But Such an interesting diversity of people there in Atlanta. Fascinating people. And remember, Minneapolis, Seattle, and San Francisco, you're next. For the Seattle show we have coming up, we've got Dan Savage again. That's going to be amazing. 
But will it be as amazing as Atlanta was? We shall see. So many interesting people there that I can't wait to get back. And we're going to start with one of them. This is Rachel Pendergrass with a story we call In Our Birthday Suits. excited to be here. It, like, physically hurts. Okay. <laughs> Don't mind if I pass out. It's all good. So, this past summer, I met a girl named Mary, and we became close friends really fast. She was one of those really smart, beautiful, outgoing people, and she had this uncanny ability to get me to agree to go out with her at night. No questions asked, even though I would really rather be doing nothing else other than lying in bed and marathoning Netflix. And I really needed that at that moment in my life because I was getting over this period where I was having trouble even leaving the house. I was staying in, avoiding my life, having panic attacks, and I really just needed someone to help me get outside my comfort zone. And so a few months after I met her, we're at a bar after a show with a couple of friends, and Mary turns to me and says, Rachel, I want you to come to my birthday party. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Great. Okay, so it's at the Paradise Valley Nudist Colony. Now, I know that's like a mile out, like an hour away. But if you're nervous about the drive, um, I have a friend that you can go with. And if you pretend you're in a relationship, first-time couples get in free. (laughs) Now, I've already agreed at this point. And I know Mary's going back to the West Coast at the end of the summer. And this might be my last time to see her. And... I am trying to get outside of my comfort zone, and there's no better way to get outside of your comfort zone than to get outside of your clothes. So, the morning of her birthday party, I wake up, and I meet her friend, Ken, who I've met all of one time before at an improv show. He's the tall, lanky, awkward improver sort. Very, very sweet. And we get into the car together, and we try to awkwardly get to know each other well enough to justify the fact that we're about to be naked together. And as we get closer and closer to this nudist resort, we get way more and more nervous until I just decide to address the giant naked elephant in the car (laughs) and ask him what he thinks about the fact that we're about to be naked in front of a bunch of strangers. And Ken says that, you know, he's nervous because he's not sure he looks good and he doesn't really want to know what the aging process of the human body is that up close. And he's kind of into Mary and he doesn't really know how the mechanics of that is going to work out once they're all naked. And I have some of the similar fears, although, you know. Um, (laughs) But there's one more fear that I kind of hesitate before I mention to Ken, which is that... You know, a year ago I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, and as it was a naked incident that caused that, I haven't really been naked around hardly anyone since that. I'm not sure how I'm going to react at a nudist colony where naked is everywhere. We both kind of ride in silence for the rest of the ride, both kind of in our own heads. When we get to the registration center, we walk inside and realize that all of the staff, much to our dismay, is fully clothed. So we can't get into this whole naked spirit yet. And they give us a parking jackal and they like tell us that the theme for the weekend 
is Woodstock, which puts me a little bit more at ease because I kind of grew up in the Dragon Con and Burner crew, so like naked hippies are my wheelhouse. And we find out that we're going to be spending most of the day at the pool, and then there's dinner, and then there's more partying, and there's 1 a.m. grilled cheese, which is to date my favorite thing I've ever seen on a schedule. (laughs) We get back in our car and go down this winding, wooded path towards the pool where everything's taking place. And the minute we get back in the car, Ken and I are like on naked person safari because we just want to get it over with and see our first naked person. So we're like looking into the trees. Do you see a butt? I don't know. Wait, I think I see a dick. Oh, wait, no, that's a stick. Shit. And we get completely unnaked personified. We get back to the uh, parking lot where there is the pool. And we have this awkward moment where we have to figure out whether or not we get naked now or if there's like a coming out ceremony. (laughs) Is there a special room for getting naked? Do you just leave your clothes in the car like a shopping bag? Like how does this work? And we decide to take it one step at a time. Ken takes off his shirt and I'm wearing a sundress and panties and that's it. So I take off my shoes. And we start walking to the pool. It turns out the best way to be noticed in a nudist colony is to be the people wearing clothes. Immediately, all of these friendly people, completely naked, start coming out of nowhere to talk to us and ask us if this is our first time here. Oh, you're just going to love it. And telling us where everything is. And I cannot hear a word any of them are saying. All I hear in my head is penis, penis. There's a penis right there. Don't look down. Look in the eyes. Look at his head. That that head, that head. And so... (laughs) And so... um, Ken and I go back to the car to kind of reconvene, and we realize that this is not going to work, clothes, so we just need to jump in the deep end, metaphorically. And so we both put our hands on our zippers, and we're playing like zipper chicken, waiting for the other one to start, just in case they're like psyching one of us out, and one of us is going to be naked, and the other one won't. And we do, we do get naked, fully naked, and we maintain the best eye contact I have ever maintained in my entire life. And we start heading towards the pool, and there we are greeted with a hundred or so people in their late 40s to early 70s, who if you, like, put a polo on them and some khakis, they would not be out of place at a country club, like, rolling up in their Honda Odyssey with a Romney sticker. Like, these look like my dad's friends, except they're totally naked. With the exception of, like, the odd old lady with the belly chain, or the one woman who took Woodstock to the extreme and had, like, flower pasties, or my all-time favorite fashion choice I've ever seen. One very patriotic man had red, white, and blue pony beads wrapped all the way around twig and berries. I didn't know what the ball bracelets were a fashion choice, but gentlemen, you guys should be looking into that. So Ken and I head straight for the bar, and I'm trying to, like, Lady Godiva and cover my nipples with my hair because this is an attractive position for me to stand in. And we get alcohol, thank God, and we head back to our phones and we call Mary to see where she and her friends are. And it turns out there's been a scheduling conflict and we're two hours early. So Ken and I are left to make friendly with the naked people. We get into the pool, so at least something's covering us, even if it's transparent. And we just stand there for a few moments, but then all of a sudden the, the nudists start coming up and talking to us. They're very, very friendly, and we 
we meet this one man and his wife who's sitting on one of those pool donuts with her legs splayed, and I'm trying not to be her gynecologist. And they explain to us that they've been married for 20 years, and they started this lifestyle when they got married, and they've been to so many different resorts together, and you should go to the ones in Florida. They're just fantastic. And the woman we find out by day is a dental hygienist, and the man works at a restaurant near my college, and I think, oh my goodness, I need a job. should ask him if they're hiring servers. And then I remember I'm naked, and that's not appropriate to be asking someone when you're naked. But that's the thing. In under an hour at this nudist colony, I had gone from freaked out to forgetting I was naked. And that was a pretty big boost of confidence. Yeah. I was pretty excited that I had not only not had a panic attack, but just forgotten I was naked. Uh, so not long after that, Mary and her friends show up. It's like five of us, and we have what would otherwise be a fairly normal birthday party. We play volleyball, which is less painful than you might think. Um, And we have dinner, chocolate cake, some wine. We drink by the pool. At the end of the night, we're all heading to this cabin that Mary has rented for us to stay in. And as we're walking towards the cabin, we walk past this group of people sitting out front of their cabin with a big inflatable screen. And on this screen, there are two women with full makeup and full breasts and they are having crazy lesbian sex. One of them has like the four inch long plastic nails and she's really just going at it. And the other one's being very creative with her stiletto and she's going at it. And my friends just kind of pass by and make a comment about maybe stiletto's not the best object to be putting in there. But I stand frozen because despite the fact that I have been literally surrounded by vaginas all day long, For the first time since arriving, I feel really uncomfortable with nudity. I feel really uncomfortable seeing these two naked women. Because the vaginas I had been encountering all day long were attached to dental hygienists and people who were bad at volleyball, people with cellulite and who really liked the pork roast and real people. But these two women on the screen, nothing about what they were doing was real. Nothing about them was real. And that wasn't the point. Nobody cared if the woman on the screen was a dental hygienist. They just cared about what was going on with the stiletto. She had been reduced down to one body part. And suddenly I'm back in freshman year of college. And I am at that moment where I stopped being Rachel, the adorable quirky theater major, and I became a body part. I became an object, flesh for pleasure. I was no longer a she, I was an it. And I feel the panic attack rising inside of me. I feel all of the anxiety. And Ken, thank God, notices and makes some vague excuse about having to be up early the next morning and whisks me away to the car. We get back in the car, and once I've calmed down, we talk about what nudity is viewed as, what our experience with naked people has been up until today. And up until today... Most of our experience with naked people has been watching lots and lots and lots and lots of internet porn (laughs) and watching sex scenes in movies and looking at advertisements and going to strip clubs. Very little of it involved actual people being full people, flesh and what's inside. And it bothered me. It bothered me that we have this ability to reduce people down to just one body part. We even do it with our language. Hey, quit being a dick. God, you're such a pussy. And so, for my birthday, two months later, I decided to invite a lot of my girlfriends out. We went to Jeju, the naked Korean spa. 
all of them to the idea of being naked and a whole person. Flaws, cellulite, crazy Korean ladies scrubbing you down, and all. And it was great. We all got outside of our comfort zones when it came to nudity. And the best way to get outside of your comfort zone? Get outside of your clothes. Thank you. mentioned a concept in there and I made a mental note of it right away. I, there is a guy that I see who is sadistic, right? He likes to torture me, tie me up. And actually, I played a recording of him uh, tickle torturing me one time on, on the podcast. But uh, I have learned over time that you have to be very, very careful about what you say around people like that because you don't want to give them ideas, right? Uh, And you have to be careful about saying yes to things where you're not completely sure exactly what they're talking about. So recently he said, I would like to try some cock and ball torture with you. And I was like, ah, I'll get back to you on that. And then Rachel mentioned tonight, I was like, I never want to let this guy hear that story in case he might hear the phrase zipper chicken. Because that phrase could give a sadistic person some terrible ideas. Also, what is it about kink and nudist camps that serve grilled cheese at one in the morning? That's a thing. That's just that, you know, there may be um, some nutrients in grilled cheese that are essential for replacing whatever you squirted out of yourself earlier in the evening. Uh, But wasn't that fabulous? I love it when people are able to get vulnerable up here on the stage, but also have a real spirit of laughter about it to take us to funny places and uh, scary places also. So lovely, lovely, lovely. Uh, I'd like to bring our next storyteller to the stage. He is a writer and storyteller in town. He uh, was the host of a show Uh, I'm not sure if it was here, but it was called The Iceberg, another popular show in town. And he is Corey Byram! Hello, everybody. How are you guys doing? This is cool, huh? Uh, So I grew up in a fairly straight-laced conservative family. We went to church every Sunday. My parents didn't drink or smoke or even cuss. They didn't go to parties or have parties at the house, stay out late, none of that kind of stuff. Most importantly, we never had the premium cable channels. So there was no like Skinamax after dark for me to kind of sneak and peek at, you know, after everyone was in bed, that sort of thing. My dad never had a box full of Playboys tucked away in the closet. In fact, the closest thing to pornography we had in our house at all was a, a handful of snapshots from when my dad was, lived in Thailand during the Vietnam War, and they were of half-naked go-go dancers. And the pictures were black and white and very blurry. They weren't exactly the height of eroticism, but when I found them at 
12 years old or so, you know, they kind of did the job, I guess, but they weren't much to look at, really. Uh, my first exposure to pornography came a couple years before that, actually, when I was around 10, maybe 11. A friend of mine who lived across the street raced BMX bikes, and his dad had plowed a big dirt bike track in the woods behind their house. And for some reason, in the middle of this track, uh, there were two big industrial-sized AC units. They were completely empty on the inside. They're basically big metal shells, like this high, big enough for a couple of kids to get into. Someone in the neighborhood had turned them into a clubhouse of sorts, which is basically to say there were a couple of nudie mags stuffed in there. And it was nothing too hardcore. It was like Playboy or Penthouse or something like that. But as a 10-year-old, looking at those ladies in, in those pages, it did something to my mind. You know what I mean? Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with them, but I wanted to share my G.I. Joes with them or teach them how to transform Optimus Prime or something. <laughs> you know, they just made me feel something. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to remember this now, but there was a time, uh, which we're probably all here old enough to remember, uh, that there was a time when there wasn't a global pornography network sitting in all of our houses or in all of our back pockets, for that matter. Um, seeing a, a couple of blurry snapshots or looking at these, you know, Playboy magazines sitting in an AC unit in the middle of the woods uh, was more than enough. I can't even imagine what kids are going through these days with all of this shit that's on the internet um, at their disposal. It's kind of, kind of scary. But all of this changed uh, when I was about 13, before school, 8th grade, when this kid scoots up next to me and says, Hey, look what I stole from my dad last night. And he pulls open his backpack, and inside is a plain black VHS tape. There's no cover. There's a label that's hot pink, and in yellow letters it says, Wild Stuff. <laughs> and below that, three letters, X, X, X. And I'm like, holy shit, man, is that a porn? And he's like, yeah. There's like a sparkle in his eye, you know, he's kind of wagging his <laughs> eyebrows. I said, is it any good? He's like, yeah, man, it's got everything in it. And I didn't know what everything was, but I knew that I wanted to find out what everything was. So I kind of meekly asked him, hey, you think I could borrow it? And much to my surprise, he says, sure. And he hands it to me. We sneak it into my backpack. So all day at school, eighth grade, I've got wild stuff in my backpack. <laughs> And I'm freaking out. I'm afraid to put it in the locker lest there's some impromptu locker search, drug raid. What, I, I don't know. That never happened. But I was convinced it would happen that day. So I kept it in my backpack. And every time we would, I would get to class and I would have to reach in to pull out a book, I was convinced that wild stuff was going to leap out onto the floor. And everyone in the room would see it and laugh at me and know what a pervert I was. But somehow I made it through the day. I got on the bus, I told my friends on the bus that I had this tape, I showed it to them, and they were like, man, is, it, is, it, what, is that a porno? Is it any good? So I said, yeah, Ida says it's got everything on it. <laughs> he got it from his dad, I don't know, I mean, I, I guess his dad's into this stuff, he seems pretty cool, I don't know, you know. To me, it was crazy that a kid's dad would have porn movies in their house. When you're kind of that age, I guess you sort of, or at least for me, I always kind of assumed everyone's parents were like my parents. And so I'm imagining Idis' dad is like this sort of Dan Fielding from Night Court character. He's like professional but also super sleazy and he's always carrying around a highball glass and wearing knee-length robes. And like 
like tiger skin rugs and mirrors on the ceiling, the whole bit. Basically, I'm thinking, he must be pretty cool. Um, so I tell my friends on the bus that I will let them watch wild stuff, but not that day. I knew that my first viewing of this video had to be one-on-one. I had to do this as a solo activity. I didn't know what I was going to see, but I knew that I needed to see it by myself. I get off the bus, I race inside, and my mom had taken a half day off at work. Uh, and that, that's exactly what I said. Oh. So the jig was up. There was nothing I could do. We had one TV in the house that had a VCR on it. It was in the living room, which was right next to the, my parents' bedroom. So even if I waited till they went to bed at night, there's no way I could risk watching it, knowing there was only a wall separating us. So I had to come up with some kind of plan B. We had one of those old school style video cameras that you carry on your shoulder, you know? It took regular full-size VHS tapes and it had a playback function. (laughs) Aside from maybe, uh, you know, videoing my brothers and I um, lip-syncing Kiss songs, it only really got brought out when we went on vacation or at Christmas. So I knew I could sneak it out, get it up to my room, and no one was really gonna notice it was gone. So I get it up into my bedroom, I'm kind of sandwiched myself behind my bed, uh, in between the bed and the wall, so if anyone opens the door, they're not, it's not obvious what I'm doing. I mean, they're going to wonder what I'm doing, but... <laughs> this was way before video cameras had the like, screen that flipped out, you know? So in order to watch it, I had to put my eye up to the little viewfinder. <laughs> and the viewfinder was black and white. And there was a headphone jack on it, but it was only, it was only mono, so it only came into one speaker. So I'm squeezed kind of beside the, behind the bed with my eye up to the viewfinder watching black and white porno while this filth is pouring into one ear. And let me tell you guys, this video had everything in it. There were boobs and wieners and vaginas and butts and there were wieners doing things with the vaginas and the boobs and the butts and there were boobs doing things with the boobs and vaginas doing things with the vagina. I mean... It blew my 13-year-old mind. (laughs) So I had to tape for about two weeks. (laughs) The specifics of what went on during those two weeks is probably best left not told in a public forum. But suffice to say, I got very used to sticking my eye up to that viewfinder and listening in one headphone to wild stuff. One morning before school, Ida says to me, hey, listen, man, I really need to get that tape back from you. I think my dad noticed it was missing. And I'm like, well, shit. All right, I'll bring it back to you tomorrow. You know, I'm disappointed, but I can only imagine what kind of trouble he's going to get in if his dad figures out what's going on. So, all right, all right, I'll bring it back tomorrow. That night, my dad was out of town on business. My mom had gone to bed early like she always did during the work week. And my brother, who was 18 years old and who I got along with probably about as well as you would imagine, a 13-year-old and his 18-year-old brother got along. He was outside playing basketball, shooting baskets by himself. I was playing Nintendo or something. The phone rings. I answer it, and a woman says, I need to speak to Corey. And I don't recognize the voice. And adults don't call me on the phone. I'm 13. And if they do call me on the phone, it's like my grandmother or something. And this clearly wasn't my grandmother. Uh, This is Corey. Corey, this is Idas' mother. I understand that you have something that belongs to his father. 
and I am freaking out. First of all, not only does this kid's dad have porn videos in the house, but his mom knows about it. And when one goes missing, she's the one who's calling to figure out where it is and how to get it. I, I don't, do not understand what is happening. I say to her, oh, uh, um, yeah, well, yes, I do have, have that, yes. Um, I... Uh, I actually already put it in my backpack. I'm going to bring it back to Idis tomorrow. Uh, I kind of had forgotten I had it, to be honest with you. <laughs> she cuts me off. No. That's not good enough. We're coming to get it right now. <laughs> I grab the tape. I run outside to the only possible ally I will have in this, my brother. And I spill it. I tell him everything. Holy shit, you're not going to believe this. I got this video. It's a porn movie. This kid gave it to me. His dad wants it back. His mom called. They're coming over. I don't know what to do. He calms me down. He says, listen. Mom's in bed. Dad's out of town. You've got the tape right here in your hand. He's going to come and get it. They'll take the tape. They'll leave. No big deal. I calm down. I'm thinking, you know, he's probably had porn movies in the house before, too, and he just never told me about it. So maybe he's got some kind of experience with this sort of thing. Sure enough, a few minutes later, this big boat of a car kind of rounds the corner, turns into our driveway. I see Idis' mom and dad in the front seat looking pissed off. Idis is in the back. He won't even look at me. He's like slumped. <laughs> he won't even look up to, to make eye contact with me. But I'm still pissed at him for giving me up on this whole thing. There's no reason for him to do that. His dad gets out of the car, walks over to me. Are you Corey? He kind of looks like Huggy Bear. He's like kind of tall and, and scrawny and he's smoking a cigarette. Are you Corey? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm Corey. He snatches the tape from me, takes a puff off his cigarette, and then proceeds to tear me a new asshole for like eight solid minutes about, why did you have this tape? I just shouldn't have taken this tape. You shouldn't have taken it from him. You should have given it back. Just going on and on. And I'm thinking, like, I didn't really do anything wrong I mean, beyond a 13-year-old having porn in the first place. But I didn't do anything against him. He's not letting up. He's just in my face, you know. Finally, he says, I ought to call the cops on your punk ass. And before the second S and ass even finishes, he's like, he's, you know, my brother loses it. He slams the basketball down, which bounces off into the woods, and just unleashes on this guy. He gets right up in his face. He's got his finger in his face. and I mean, he's just, like, destroying him. You know, it's, my brother didn't do anything wrong. You know, you shouldn't have had this shit laying around where your son could find it in the first place. If anybody's got a problem, it's you. It's, you know, you want to call the cops, go right ahead. Get them down here. They'll haul your ass off because you are trespassing on our property. You got your take, you know, the whole bit. And so I'm thinking, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> but I'm also thinking... Please don't hit him. Please don't hit him. Please don't hit him. Because I know if punches get thrown, then there's no way I'm getting out of this thing unscathed. Right? Because then the cops really would end up there, and it would be a disaster. Idis' dad kind of doesn't really even miss a beat. Takes a hit off his cigarette and says, Okay, we're going to go, but I'm taking my wife and my son home, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to sit down with your parents and talk about this. He takes the tape, gets in the car, and goes, Now... If any event in my life has solidified the saying that hindsight is 2020, this is it. Because of course he's not going to take them home and come back to talk to my parents. That makes no sense. For all he knows, my mom and dad are sitting inside watching TV or something. He doesn't know my dad's out of town. He doesn't know my mom goes to bed early. It makes no sense. 
The smart thing for us to do would have been to sit tight in the driveway, give it a half hour or so, see if he actually comes back. So, of course, that's not what we did. (laughs) In an attempt to get ahead of the situation, we went inside, we get my mom up out of bed. (laughs) My brother lays it all out for her. Corey got a video from a friend. It was a dirty movie. His dad came to get it. I screamed in his face. I'm going back outside. Thanks. And I'm left to deal with this. Now, in my brother's defense, it wasn't really his mess to clean up, but still, he kind of could have stuck around to see me through it. (laughs) My mom, God bless her, she handled it very well. She didn't really get that upset. She didn't get angry. We sat down. She said, sex is a beautiful thing. (laughs) She actually said those literal words that she said. Sex is a beautiful thing that happens between two people who love each other. And what you saw in that video made it something dirty. And I was thinking, hell yes it did. Why do you think I was watching it every night? I didn't really get any kind of punishment. I had the most awkward conversation of my life to that point. My mom probably had the most awkward conversation of her life at that point. As far as I know, my dad never found out about it, or if he did, he never brought it up to me because then there would have been another awkward conversation. But there was no, I didn't get grounded or any, there was no real punishment beyond the embarrassment of it all. I couldn't help but kind of see my brother differently after all this took place. We didn't get along that well, you know, as I mentioned. But after this, I kind of had a new admiration for him, a little more respect for him. He had stood up for me a time or two, you know, when one of his friends might pick on me and take it a little too far, that kind of thing. But this was the first time he had ever really stood up for me when I truly needed someone to stand up for me. And he had a notorious short fuse, but this is the only time, probably to this day, that he's ever really lost his temper on my behalf. I wish I could say that it was the last, that we never fought again after that, but that's not actually the truth. Our very final physical fight that we ever had, I remember very clearly... And it happened because I turned the channel during Saved by the Bell. (laughs) And I didn't turn it back fast enough before the commercial was over. I was 17 and he was 22. (laughs) And that was a serious knockdown drag out. Like, like, Like chairs were flipped over. My dad had to separate. Like punches were thrown. We kind of got our shit together after that and realized that maybe, maybe we shouldn't be fighting over silly stuff. But. A couple years later, you know, the internet boom happened. It became a lot easier to find naked people if you wanted to look at naked people. So in the meantime, I had sort of learned that maybe I shouldn't have porn movies in the house. Maybe it's just not a good idea. Internet solved that problem, of course. By my uh, freshman year of college, I had my own computer with an internet connection. One of the very first things I did, alone at night, with my internet connection, was to search out the adult film star Nina Hartley. (laughs) Expected some applause, but okay. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I'm alone on this one. Nina Hartley, uh, she's a star who's been active in the industry for decades. She's still active in the industry now. Um, She starred in such films as uh, Sorority Stewardesses. (laughs) Adventures of the Fart Bitches. And a little more recently, you've got a mother thing coming. (laughs) I will let you work out the spelling on all of that. 
But most importantly for me, she starred in a movie called Wild Stuff. Because as they say, you never forget your first. Thank you. Corey Byram! Uh, that was great. Yeah, Nina Hartley is actually, uh, uh, she actually does a lot of writing and sex education as well. She uh, uh, sometimes contributes to the Huffington Post, kind of teaching people about uh, sex. And so, yeah, she's a bit of a hero in the community. Uh, also, I may be a gay male, but if there's a movie called Adventures of the Fart Bitches... <laughs> I've got to see it. I, 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 when Corey first told me this story, I was like, wait, 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 wait. I've got to look that up. There's actually a Facebook group for fans of Adventures of the Fart Bitches. Uh, and rightly, rightly so. <laughs> Maybe we can make it a sort of like a, a Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, our next storyteller, it's, it's so awesome. Uh, it, we've known each other for years, actually, and I had no idea that he was currently in Atlanta. Uh, we met years ago when I first started teaching comedy. He did a lot of comedy work at uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade up in New York and uh, a lot of crazy, kooky characters. And uh, he's told some stories on Risk before in Los Angeles and in New York, so it's really awesome to have him here in um, in his hometown of Atlanta. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Rob Latham. Please welcome to the stage, Rob Latham! Oops. All right. Uh, whoops. <laughs> How's everybody doing? audience. Uh, so yeah, thanks so much for having me, Kevin, and everybody here. Um, so yeah, my, my uh, junior year in college was when I hit rock bottom. Uh, I had just gotten in a lot of trouble and, you know, health uh, seriousness for almost um, drinking myself to death. And, and I was forced to take some time off college and moved back home to Atlanta, where, I, where I'm from, and live at home with my parents. Um, and I was completely lost, completely aimless at the time. I was so lost, I didn't even know that I was lost or that I was even supposed to have a direction to go. And at the time, my mom forced me to pay rent to live at, in my room where I grew up. So I had to pay, you know, write her a check every month. So I worked, for, uh, I worked as a cake deliverer for a company called Piece of Cake. So I served great cakes, um, red velvet, uh, some awesome cakes. So, go check it out. Uh, but the thing was, I was the, the worst cake deliverer ever at Piece of Cake. And that's saying something because there are Every cake liver was awful. Right? 
But the people that made the cakes were great, but the people that delivered were people like me, just total deadbeats. And, but I was the worst. Uh, I would get lost all the time on my routes. I would deliver damaged cakes due to the fact that I would get in car accidents. Uh, so that I would deliver the cakes totally smushed. I would, you know, basically deliver cakes that should last, you know, should take 30 minutes. It would take, like, literally four hours for me. And I would also do, seek out other adventures while I was on my cake delivery routes. For instance, several times, I would go to the CNN Center, deliver a cake, and then I would proceed to be an audience member for a show called CNN Talk Back Live, where I would sit in the audience for an hour, just so I could see myself later, because I would record the show, and tell my friends to record it. So I could see myself for five seconds in the audience. Uh, while I'm supposed to be delivering cakes. And I did that like literally 10 times. Uh, but the, the worst, probably the craziest adventure that I had uh, while I was a cake deliverer occurred when I, I delivered a cake to an office on Peach Street across from the High Museum. And I was driving the cake delivery car, uh, the piece of cake delivery car, Cake Mobile. There is you know, cake piece of cake signs on, on both doors and on top. Uh, so I delivered my cake. This time it was fully intact, it wasn't damaged. I was not that late delivering it, so I was feeling pretty good about myself. Walking back to the cake mobile in the parking lot when I hear this, hey, 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 how would you like to make $100? And I was like, uh, no, no, I'm, I'm just, um, I'm a cake deliverer, I'm just... You know, no, 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 no. I, I need help, I need help. Could, could you help me out and I'll give you $100? And the guy looked kind of shady. Uh, I was like, um, what, what do you mean? Um, what, like, how, what, what are I, you know, I'm, I'm, new, I'm, new from, I'm new to this country, I just need some help, I just need you to, to run an errand for me. Please, please, I'll give you $100. And, you know, once again, the guy looks shady, he looked like, he had like long hair, unsh you know, he hadn't shaved in a while. He didn't look like threatening, but just, you couldn't trust him. He looked like Ratso Rizzo from Midnight Cowboy. And, you know, so I, sh I Anybody who with half a brain would immediately be like, no, what? <laughs> Hell no, I'm out of here. Plus I had like five more red velvets to go with. <laughs> but, but because I was looking for any sense of adventure and I was a complete idiot, I was like, uh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, sure, what, what do you need? Uh, okay, well, I, I just need you to drop me off at uh, this place and then um, do just one errand and, and you're good. So he proceeded to get in the, the um, cake mobile, piece of cake car, and he told me to drive him to this bar on Ponceleon. So I'm, I'm driving. The whole time he's scribbling frantically on this envelope, like a 
mass murder or something like all, like there's it's just filled with like all these words and I, you know I don't know what's going on and meanwhile while I'm driving he says to me hey you know that place the landmark diner I was like yeah which at the time I knew was a, known as a mafia hangout he was like <clears throat> You'll never have to pay for a meal there again. <laughs> and I gave like a nervous laugh. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, I'm thinking to myself, like, a this guy's either completely crazy, or he's completely full of shit. Or he really does have mafia connections. Or all the above. Which is probably what it was. But at the same time, I'm also thinking, this is pretty fucking cool. (laughs) Maybe this is my my opportunity. I could be a cake deliverer and also be an errand boy for the mafia. Maybe like Henry Hill from Goodfellas, you know, Ray, Ray Liotta's character. Like, I could have a dual income. Then I could pay for the rent to my mom and, you know, have extra money on the side. You know, get, a, get a nice outfit going. So, you know, I'm sort of living in a dream world while I'm driving the, the cake mobile to Ponce de Leon. So we, we get to Ponce de Leon. He's like, okay, okay, you let me out of here, and uh, then you drop this envelope at this address written on the envelope. And he gave me directions to where it was, and I was like, well, hold on, well, you're coming with me, right? He's like, no, 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 I got, I got some business to do here at, at this bar. So I was like, uh, okay, all right, so I just go, yeah, yeah, just take, you know, do a left here, right here, it's like five minutes away from the bar. So I was like, all right, fine. Stupidly, I drop him off at the bar at Ponce Leon, and I drive to the address that he told me to go to. And he also told me, before I left, he said, okay, so go to the back of the house and just drop the envelope right there at the door. I was like, why the back of the house? Just, just do it. Also, leave the car running. <laughs> what? Wait, why should I leave the car running? Trust me, you'll need to leave the car running. So, again, just looking for, I know I'm in over my head. I, you know, nod my head and drive a piece of cake company car to the address. Um, I get there, I, I do leave the car running. Uh, I go to the back of the house, and waiting for me, the back of the house, there is an attractive girl who is wearing like an aerobics outfit. Uh, Next to her is this huge muscle-bound guy with a red bandana, sweats, uh, muscle t-shirt, holding a baseball bat. He's like, he is, they're both furious at me. Like, who the fuck are you? 
I, and I just dropped the envelope. He's like, we have a warrant out for that guy's arrest. He has been harassing her. So at, the, at that moment, I realized that I'm like assisting this crazy guy who's probably been harassing the girl. And somehow I'm like helping him out. I'm an accomplice. And I, I'm freaking out. He's literally holding a baseball bat at me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm, I, I'm so sorry. I'm so And I just take off to the gate mobile. He runs after me. Get back here. She's yelling and screaming at me. So I get in the cake mobile, put it in drive, floor it. He gets in his car, chases after me. So I'm driving. And I'm, I'm, I've been through, I've like fallen through ceilings, I've been in other automobile accidents, I've seen it all. This is the most scared I've ever been in my entire life. I have like hair standing up in my back. Oh my God. I mean, I'm either going to die, he's either going to beat me to death with his baseball bat, or he's going to run into me, or I'm, he's going to pull a citizen's arrest and I'm in the jail forever. So I'm just freaking out. And I'm, the whole time I'm just like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm just Meanwhile, I'm driving a piece of cake company car, the cake mobile, and I don't know where to go. I'm like, he's like behind me, driving like on my tail, like almost like bumping the piece of cake car. And, his, he's got his head out of the window. Fuck you, motherfucker! Come after me! Fuck you, man! Like, still got his baseball bat holding him while he's driving. And I'm like, where the fuck? What do I do? Where do I go? Like, I don't want to get beaten to pulp with a baseball bat. And so I don't know where to go except I go back to the bar at Ponsalina. So I go back to the bar. Of course, the shady, like, mafia guys know. Ratso Rizzo is nowhere to be found. So, but I stupidly, I parked the car there, but I leave it running. The great baseball bat guy gets out. He's like, you're fucked. I have your license plate. I'm going to report you to the cops. And you are fucked. <laughs> of course, it was a piece of cake. Car license. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But I just... Gun it. I'm like, all right, this is, he's out of the car, this is my chance. So I just gun it, drive the piece of cake car up to Pazzaleon, like a mile up. Finally, I find a Mexican restaurant, pull over, go to the Mexican restaurant, sprint in, go into the bathroom, lock the bathroom, and just hide. And I'm, I'm literally, I'm crouching on the ground. Like, and I stay there literally for an hour. I just sit there for an hour, like people are knocking, like, hello, hello? Just stay there. Like, I'm, I'm convinced that the baseball bat guy is like waiting for me outside the door. Finally, after an hour, and of course, you know, I still have more cakes to deliver. Green pound bathroom. Walk back to the cake park. Deliver my... Uh, white chocolate and red velvet and chocolate chip cake. Really good cakes. Really, really, really good cakes. We're, we're definitely worth the wait. Worth the wait. Um, and then drive back, drive back to Lisa Cake and like, and everybody's saying, where have you been? Even though like, they're used to me being gone for five hours. But like, this time it's like extra long. I was like, eh, hey, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a lot of traffic out there. <laughs> uh, and 
And I was worried, like I was convinced that they would report the car, you know, that I'll hear it and get fired from the piece of cake. I wouldn't be able to pay the rent. Uh, but luckily, I, they never reported um, the the car. I never heard back from my mafia boss, um, and. Um, and I, I never went, I, I, I've never, this is crazy, but I've never gone to the Landmark Diner. Probably, probably just, I'm scared, I'm scared that I'll see Ratso Rizzo there. But, but you know, I'm kind of, like, I love, in, my, in a dream world, I envision myself going to the Landmark Diner and plopping myself down, ordering, like, you know, rack of lamb or, like, steak, lobster, serpent and turf, getting, you know, the, the most expensive meal, and then giving me the check. It was amazing. And me just pulling back and saying, no, no, you don't understand. My money's no good here. <laughs> Thank you very much. story, we're going to take it into a slightly more uh, uh, hefty, slightly more emotional zone here, as you know, Risk often does. It's been an honor to work with her on this story. She is also a native Atlantan. It's so great to come to a place like this and find, you know, folks right there in town who have wonderful stories to tell. Uh, So please welcome to the stage, Emily Parker! Um, so I work for DFACS. I work for the Department of Family and Children's Services, and I do investigations into child abuse. So basically, if somebody calls into the department and say, you know, my neighbor's beating up on their kid, I'm the person that goes and knocks on the door and tries to figure out if that's true and if the child is actually safe or not. I got into this line of work after I graduated from the University of Georgia, um, go dogs, um, with my bachelor's degree from, my bachelor's degree in social work. And I got into it because I'm really good in a crisis. I have a really good crisis mode and I like handling people's crisis. I can go in, dial in and calm things down. I can make other people see what's going on and I'm just really good at making people feel better on a really bad day. During this period of time in my life, it was Friday the 13th in June of this year, and I had just moved north from Bibb County after eight years of dating and two years of marriage ended. And um, my husband said that he didn't love me and that he didn't want to be married to me anymore. So basically, I was going through my own personal crisis 24-7, And my whole world just felt like it was falling apart. I no longer had a plan. I no longer knew what I was doing. And 10 years of my life was just gone. I went to work that day and went out on a home visit and took the company car. And when I got back from that visit, I promptly locked the keys in the car, uh, left 
a clipboard with the keys two inches in front of my face on the dash and locked the door and got out and locked the keys in the car. So I've only been working in this county for a month and I am like terrified. I want them to like me. I want them to think I'm good at my job, but I have to go tell my supervisor what I've done and the scary HR lady and who's super scary. Nobody in HR is, is happy. They're all very cranky and she was very cranky with me. And uh, <laughs> the second time, that's my dad. <laughs> They get the keys out of the car, and I'm like, okay, restart my day, let's go. Um, And I go out on a 24-hour investigation, um, which means I have 24 hours to figure out if a child who um, was reportedly walking around his neighborhood alone and unsupervised, if that's legit and if he's safe or not. So I go to this house, and I knock on the door, and about a 13-year-old kid answers who I'm going to call George. And, you know, I say, I'm Emily, I'm with Defects, I need to speak to this person about her child. And he says, oh, that's my aunt, she's not here right now, but she's at work, I'll call her for you. And I'm like, great. I have no idea what George says to this mom, but she shows up and she's obviously already amped up. She's just like, she's already super nervous. And I'm kind of used to that, Defects, nobody wants to see me. Um, (laughs) So we go down into her, like, basement apartment and we're talking and... I give my spiel, I'm Emily, I'm from DFAX, and I need to talk to you about your son. And she starts talking, and she doesn't speak very good English, she's Hispanic. You know, luckily I had three years of Spanish in high school, and then three years of Spanish in college, so I speak zilch Spanish. (laughs) No Spanish at all, I know two phrases, I can say, sit down, and it's all good. Siete, esta bien, that's the only thing I can say. I get the words defects out of my mouth and I don't know what happened. I don't know if she confused deport with defects, but she freaks the hell out. She just goes ape shit and she starts running around her apartment, talking at me in Spanish, 90 miles an hour, ripping open a duffel bag and throwing her children's clothes in this duffel bag. And I'm like listening very intently and she is not telling me to sit down and she is not telling me that everything is okay. I have no idea what she's saying. No clue what's going on. And I'm trying to calm her down and like open stance, calm words, it's gonna be fine. I, you know, defects, not deport. George hears the commotion upstairs and finally comes down and he's like, What did you what did you do? And I just look at him and I just like beg this 13-year-old child to like please help me. I have no idea what's happening, which is a huge no-no. You cannot use a child as a translator. But that never works out. He eventually gets her calmed down. He is able to tell her I'm not there to take her child away from her or deport them or anything, and we can have the visit, and, you know, and I figure out everything is fine. But I, like, look at this kid, and I'm like, you're 13, and I just subjected you to this giant crisis. Awesome. Way to go, me. I'm good at my job. Way to go. (laughs) As I'm walking out the door of this house, my supervisor calls me and tells me that the department has decided to remove a child from a home where I had removed um, their sibling earlier in the week. And this is a two-year-old kid, and his mom is really, really young, and she has had a really rough life. 
she spent the latter part of her teen years in foster care and just like can't get her shit together. She had the baby and then left this child with her aunt for and basically never went back. The department unfortunately found out that this aunt has a pretty nasty cocaine habit and um, had had her children taken away in other states, so therefore she's not appropriate to care for this child. It's in a neighboring county, so it takes me about half an hour to get there, and on the way, I call dispatch and ask for backup because this family has zero clue what's happening. Our case is with mom, so they have no idea who I am. They have no idea that what's coming, no idea that anything is even wrong. I get to the house and I drive about like 20 yards past the driveway and wait for the cop. When she pulls in, I like get out and I get my backpack on. I'm like trying to refocus from the deport debacle. <laughs> and I walk up to the cop car and I look in and literally this woman looks just like my grandmother. She's like this little hunched over 90 year old cotton headed woman. And I'm like, what? This is what you send me for backup? Can she run away if something happens? Can she see to point the gun? A pistol is not going to cut it. Give this lady a shotgun because we need to like hit a broader scope of area if we need to shoot anybody because she's not going to be able to aim. I'm just like, oh, this is not going to go well. Um, But we head up the driveway and the family is sitting in their minivan. The the car's not on. They're just kind of like chilling in there. I don't know why. The child is biracial. He's half Hispanic, half black, but like mostly Hispanic looking. He's got very fair skin, but they have his hair in cornrows, except that he's got like white person hair. So it's like sticking up out of his cornrows. Just (laughs) He's adorable, but also a little silly looking. Um, I say, you know, I walk up to the sands and I, you know, I tell her who I am and ask her, you know, can we go inside and talk? And she's already not happy because she knows the deal. I'm defects. I take kids away. That's what she thinks. We go inside. I sit her down, you know, and I say, ma'am, I'm sorry. I know that this is really, really sudden, but I have to take your nephew into care. You're not going to be able to take care of him anymore. And... She just like, like does like this, like lifts her shoulders up, looks at me, looks down at the child, and she just starts going, just like for minutes at a time, just doesn't stop. She doesn't. She's not even breathing. I don't know how she's like even making that sound for that long and and I'm trying to talk to her I'm like trying to explain things you know you can go to court you can plead your case just doing nothing about this time as she's wailing her dad comes up to me he's this big brawny black man and he gets up in my face and he says what the fuck do you think you're doing get your white ass out of my house you're not fucking tearing my family apart and he just is going crazy and he's just yelling at me and yelling at me and yelling at me. Meanwhile, Graham's cops isn't doing nothing. She's just standing back there like thinking about Bob Barker or something. I don't know what the hell she's doing. I'm like, can I get a little assistance? Graham's, come on. Eventually, I get tired of getting yelled at and I bow up on this guy and I say, you know, sir, if you're going to continue to use profanity in front of me and this child, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. I'm going to have to ask you 
this officer to escort you out. This kind of like wakes grandma up a little bit and she, she like comes up and like, now sir, you need to go sit down and let this young lady do her job. And I'm like, it's like the most non-threatening cop in the world. Meanwhile, the ants just the whole time. After her dad goes and sits down, you know, I pick the child up and I'm holding him and I just, I say to this aunt, I need his clothes. Can you please tell me where his clothes are? And she like snaps out of it and whips her head around and says, you're not taking a fucking thing out of this house. And I say, I have to have some clothes for him, and if you're not going to find them for me, then I'm going to have to find them for myself. So I start walking around, and I'm looking for baby clothes, and I walk into her bedroom, and there's some clothes out on her dresser. And I just slowly start folding up clothes, and I'm trying to find a bag to put them in. And this woman's 14-year-old daughter walks in. She had just recently regained custody of her daughter. And she has like a little bit of a mental handicap of some kind. She's just a little slow. Um, But she just walks in beside me and she takes the clothes out of my hand and she just looks at me and she goes, I'll help you. And I just was like, oh, thank God. Like, oh, thank you for providing. She just provided me with this moment of calm. I was making her family miserable, but she just knew that I needed some help. And she reached out to me and, and tried to help me. As she was packing things up, you know, I turned around and walked out of the room, back into the living room, and I told the aunt, do you want to say goodbye? Because I'm going to go get the car now. And she was like, you know, trying to, trying to pull herself together. So I gave her the baby back, and I walk out to the car. And the car seat that I'd had in the car had been like, the straps were really short for an infant, and this child's about two. So I had to move the straps. Except that you have to be fucking Einstein to get, you know, a car seat to the appropriate strap level. I I had no idea how to do it. So it takes me like 10 minutes. The family is now standing at the edge of the driveway waiting on me, just staring at me, furiously trying to figure this car seat out. So I'm rushing. I'm in the rental car that I just locked myself out of. I go... I go and as I open the car door to get in the front seat, I bring my head in and slam my head up against the side of the door. Almost knock myself out, manage to sit down in the driver's seat, and I pull the visor down and I just watch my face split wide open and blood just starts pouring out of my lip. And I'm like, shit, fuck. Like, what do I do? So I just start like licking my licking my lip and like trying to like velcro my face back together with spit and I'm just like wiping furiously. I have no idea what to do about this. Man, the family's just like staring at me. What's going on? I drive over and I'm like, okay, can you put them in the car seat for me? I don't want to get out. I don't want them to see my wiping furiously. <laughs> and they try to put them in the car seat and it's still not big enough. I go, okay. So I run around the car and I'm trying to like hide behind my shoulder, like don't look at the blood on my face. I get the car seat settled. I'm like, okay. I go back around and I'm like trying to talk to them over the car and like hide the fact that I'm like, grandma's just like, what the hell is going on? She fully engaged for the first time in this whole situation, watching me freak out. They they finally get him in and I like I'm 10 yards past the driveway 
and I pull up my phone to look up the foster parents' address, and my phone dies. <laughs> and I just like stop, and I look back in the rearview mirror, and this kid with his cornrows, and the, he's just like he's looking confused as I am, just like what? What are we? What are we doing? What are we doing? Um, so it takes me a really long time to find the foster family. And when I get there, you know, I, I pick the kid up and I'm walking inside. And I've worked with this foster mom before, so I know she's good. But she just kind of looks like a little disheveled. Like, I don't know if she wasn't ready for this, if it was last minute. So she looks just kind of scary. And the kid, the kid just takes one look at her and he just is like, hmm? He just like freaks out and he just starts like violently shaking and crying and like clawing onto my neck and he doesn't want to go with her at all and he's just like crying and crying and crying and I just look at him and I'm like I'm like spent I'm like I I don't know what to do for you I have no idea how to manage your crisis at all I have no idea what you need you're too and you're scared and I don't know what to do and this foster mom just like reaches out to me and she picks him up and she just looks at me and she says, it's okay, I'm gonna take him on a walk. And I just like looked at her and I was like, oh, okay, he's gonna be fine. This is managing the crisis, it's over. He's in a home now and he gets to grow up and he gets the opportunity to be a man and we helped him do that. And it didn't matter that I had just fucked up the whole day and like, had just terrified people and created crisis instead of fixing it. None of it mattered because he was going to get to have a family that was going to love him and help him grow up. And I, I have a scar on my face from, from hitting myself with the door. And I really like it um, because I look at it every day and it just reminds me that my own personal crisis it's gonna pass, and I'm gonna get to grow up, and I'm gonna get to fail if I need to, and I'm gonna get to be great if I need to. And some days, I get to save babies, and it just makes it worth it. is all for this week's episode folks this is jesse ware behind me now and minneapolis we are coming to your town 
on December 4th. We're still taking pitches for that show. The theme is dangerous. So uh, just send your pitches. Find us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Seattle, we are in your town on December 12th. Dan Savage will be doing that show. We're also still taking pitches for that one. Again, the place to do it is at risk-show.com slash submissions. Don't forget that Risk is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts, and we are listener-supported. If you love what we do, please donate. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate, and be sure to earmark your donation for Risk. If you've never visited thestorystudio.org, Check us out, because we teach all kinds of workshops. We do one-on-one training over Skype. We do corporate workshops. We even have workshops that are online that you can take in your own time. Just check us out at thestorystudio.org. And you know, more than anything else, Risk has always relied on word of mouth. Please tell all your friends you are a fan of this show. Tell them how to find us, how to download the episodes. You can always find us at risk-show.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. And on Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Try that one. I see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what the fuck is going on in this song? <laughs>